When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is the Friday show. It's Neil Atkinson with Luke Davies, with Ian Ryan and with Mo Stewart. Joining us on the phone, we will have Robbie Scotcher and Rich Ferraro uh, talking about Crystal Palace and Nottingham Forest respectively. I'm going to open this by saying I think it's a good weekend. Looking at the fixtures, see where teams are in that sort of... You've seen them play for two weeks now and you get to sort of match them off off the previous week's form and performances a little bit more moving into week three. Uh, the table is set and beginning to work out who's where in the big book and I think that that's most telling around matters pertaining to Liverpool. But before we even get into Liverpool's game against Newcastle, I do want to start off with a little bit on Mo Salah. Uh, just before we record this, there's news that uh, a Saudi Arabian club, Al Itihad, are desperate to get Salah and supposedly they're going to go as far as they possibly can in order to get him. Um, I still just don't really feel much veracity in this. I could be wrong. But to me, I think moving there still uh, looks like moving into semi-retirement. And I don't think that Mo Salah wants to move into semi-retirement, but I could be wrong. No, I mean, there's definitely a way that they will be selling it to him to say that you would be the difference maker on that score. As in, if you're there, then suddenly it all looks very different. Uh, they'll be selling him on that. I agree with you, though. I don't think it's real. And I don't think that he thinks it's real either. I think he's very much got unfinished business in Europe. I think he's got unfinished business with this football team as well. So I think, well, he is getting to the stage of his career where future plans and one last big payday, as they call it, is normally on the horizon. I don't think it's anywhere near there yet. He's very much too, like I say, he's got too much to do here. He's not looking elsewhere yet. Um, Luke, from an Evertonian point of view, do you feel as though Salah would be tempted to look elsewhere this summer at this point? It's, you could sort of ask the question, what else has he got to achieve at Liverpool? He has won it all. Obviously, he can still achieve more. It's whether he's a money-motivated individual. Whether I, It depends like what's his price. If you look at, obviously, the Henderson ordeal, if they treble his wages, it, it's going to be really hard to say no for him. But again, I think it's, he's still two years. Like Maybe it was in two years' time, you could think, yeah, he's done. But at the moment, he's still... Maybe on the other side of the mountain in terms of the peak, but he's certainly not at the bottom of it. So I think it'd be like at this at this time he could do it in a year or two. I think for him, but not right now. Not right now. I just don't. I really just struggle to see it. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'll be made to look a fool at some point. But I just really struggle to see it. I mean, I'm conscious. I sat at this table and said I'd struggle to see the Henderson one developing the way it did because I didn't see that coming either. To be honest, uh, from his point of view. But I definitely don't see this happen. I just don't. I think all the noises from his camp, including the fellow who represents him, has made it crystal clear that Mohamed Salah sees his future at Liverpool. And I think I think Mo's point's right. I think there's still things he wants to achieve. I think you get a real sense from Salah when seasons have gone poorly that it, it doesn't half hurt him. Like it, it, it's a kick in the balls and, and he, he comes out, doesn't he? And sometimes people don't like the way he comes out off the cuff, but I quite like it because it shows emotion. It shows he cares. It shows he's up for the fight, and I've got no real sense that Mohamed Salah's not up for the fight. I think he's massively up for the fight this season. I've taken Liverpool back to where they were a couple of years ago. So, no, Neil, I don't see, I don't see it happening. Listen, football can surprise you, and things can come out of nowhere, and he can be a bit shocked. And listen, you know, we've all been there at one point or another. But this one, 
just doesn't feel like it's got leg for me. All right, I want to start at the end then and continue on with Liverpool. Uh, last game of the weekend. Uh, it's a big game against Newcastle away on Sunday. And by starting at the end and talking about who's where, I feel like this one's quite significant, Mo. And the reason why is because both teams are trying to build a season in slightly mm-hmm. difficult circumstances. Newcastle definitely have the toughest first four. Liverpool have the toughest first eight, uh, if we extend beyond the first four. Which means that you don't really want to drop anything daft and the building of a season is important for different reasons. Newcastle have got to keep walking that particular walk. That maybe wasn't even pressure on them last season uh, at this point. And Liverpool have got to get back to where they were and being perceived to where they were, where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a, it's a difficult ask for both sides. And obviously with them meeting each other, um, there is a way both of them can manage to maintain uh, aspects of that. But all of that said it'll almost also be the sort of game where afterwards, even if it's a draw, people will be telling you who won on points. Yeah, definitely will, because it's one of those big blockbuster clashes between two teams who you expect to be fighting out or in and around the same positions come May. And the difference is really interesting because obviously Liverpool are trying to get back to that level, so there's still people in there who know what that level feels like, know what it looks like, know what it has to be. Whereas you could argue that when Newcastle are in their development, they'll probably feel like they're closer to that level. They've got their squad is probably more uh, closer to where they want to be. So it's really interesting. Um, I take the point that Eddie Howe probably looked at the first four fixtures and gulped, but I do think that he would have wanted at least some big fixtures before the Champions League started to get them used to big atmospheres and particularly the way that they've got Manchester City and Liverpool back-to-back. They are going to get into a period where they're going to have big games back-to-back. So he can sell this as a plus in some ways. But obviously no one wants to get embarrassed either. And you're right, the point, I think a point would be a good one for both teams in context. And what I mean is if it's a game where you should have won and you drew it, that still will probably feel like a defeat. But as part of that, Mo, talking about that with the first the first four, they're about to hit a run where the other side of the next international break Newcastle, where for the first time in a decade, they've got seven games in four weeks. Mm. And seven games, whilst the the four league games are far easier than their first four league games, seven games where there'll be an expectation in six of them that they need to put a performance in and get what passes for a result. He can't rest, his players wouldn't stand for it either. He can't rest players for the Champions League that he wants to use in the league, if you see what I mean. Like it's it's pretty close to first 11 over and over again with only the EFL Cup game as a break. Yeah, it is. And that's why I'm kind of fascinated to see whether or not he tries to go with his strongest 11 same team for all of these games, or he does try to mix and match and try to see what he has with some of these other players in these big games. Because that's the other thing, isn't it, about having the big games early and having this big test ahead of you. Technically, the window's still open. So if you do see yourself from thinking maybe, well, maybe my backup left back is not quite up to it or there is some holes in the system or in those personnel that you didn't really anticipate beforehand, you still have a bit of time to fix it. So my gut feeling is that Eddie Howe will go his strongest 11 in all these games, but I feel like it might be an opportunity from him to maybe see, test some of these other guys. There is with... Newcastle, Luke, they they had the first big home game and it was a massive win for them. And I think being able to ride that emotional wave is important from a Newcastle point of view. Um, within that, though, it was a big game when Liverpool went there last season uh, and, and got a result. It felt like a big occasion then with St. James's Park. It, with, for me, Newcastle do need to continually find the way to to impose themselves at home. 
in a very strange way, I think, that they do well away from home last season in a number of ways. They're hard to beat. But this is the season where they need to get the trick of when people come to our place, they can expect to lose. I think with the Champions League, we'll see about that. I think, obviously, there's an aura, there's an atmosphere around the club, blah, blah. It's quite positive. You don't want anything at all, like, negative. Even at the start of the season, like Anthony Golden, last season he weren't great. You can see he looks like he's going to push on this season. Obviously, the first game of the season, it's sort of like the last game of the season at times. It can be a bit dodgy, like... Obviously, yeah. we, we've just been beat 4-0 against Villa. They beat them 5-1 the week before. but So I don't know how much you can really read into that one. But um, obviously, the game last season, um, Pope got sent off of Lapeel coming here with the win. I think they may have had uh, one eye on the League Cup final that week. So I think certainly a point. I think it's a better point for Liverpool than it is for Newcastle. I think, obviously, the home game. And as you said, like it's a point-scoring contest. But as long as Liverpool come away with Sutton, I think that's a positive result for them. It's it's a funny one really with for both sides. Newcastle showed last season that unbeaten runs are good, but there's the point where they become bad <laughs> because you just end up with with a number of draws. Liverpool end last season eleven unbeaten. They now obviously sit on thirteen unbeaten in the league. You know, two things can be true at once. And Liverpool's run of thirteen there, you can argue there's too many draws. But simultaneously, as Luke says, I don't think there's anything wrong with a draw at the weekend. Absolutely not. I think again, you'll always talk about context I think when you talk about results and I think if Liverpool are getting to the international break and they're sitting on you know two wins two draws then I'm perfectly fine with that to be honest given the fixtures now they've panned out and I think if you're going to go to Newcastle in your first and third sort of in your third game you've got Chelsea in your first game no that's not an easy ride that you know despite Chelsea having one or two problems in terms of integrating players and new manager all that stuff they're still difficult fixtures and Newcastle at home are a tough proposition. You know, the game against Villa, it ends up being a game that just gets away from Villa. And maybe there's different reasons for that. I think the Tyrone Ming stuff plays into it a little bit. But Newcastle have got the ability when they're on song and when the crowd's behind them, they can just cut through you. Yeah, and all of a sudden, one can turn to two and two can turn to three quite quickly. So I do think it's a game where if you're not careful, it can it can be a tricky one, it can be a difficult one, it can be one where you get really, really punished. That said, I think, you know, there's opportunity for Liverpool. You know, there's a, there's a back four there that you can definitely get at. I think they like to play the game on their terms, Newcastle, but I think if you've got a certain skill set within your armoury that Liverpool have got with those forward-thinking <laughs> players, again, Liverpool are a team that can just take it away from you. But Liverpool have got to be strong and they've got to be resolute and they've got to show different skills than maybe they showed against Bournemouth certainly in that first 2025 where they looked a bit susceptible they looked like they could be cut open concentration's going to be key mm-hmm. I think it'd be a feisty one Neil as well because yeah. I think you know it's the, the time it's kicking off the way last season panned out with the sending off and you know Newcastle felt hard done by even though it was a definite red and then you've got the manager's comments about Jason Tindall fairly recently as well which was a little bit tongue-in-cheek and I think how took it that way but you know behind the scenes I'm sure they're thinking cheeky prick you know so <laughs> there'll be a little bit of that so I, I think it makes for a game where mm. it's going to be a really really interesting one but I, I do come back to it. if Liverpool are walking away on Sunday night with the points that's all right for me. Mm. No, I agree. I think it's going to be a fascinating one in terms of our commitment to this new system. Because I do think if you look at the way Aston Villa, they kind of tried to do that against Newcastle and they got swamped. And when I mean they got swamped, I mean that Newcastle pressed them to death and pressed them into mistakes. And then if you look at Liverpool and what we did and you hear that, you think gulp. Because that's exactly what happened to us too. Frankly, lesser opposition in Bournemouth than Newcastle. So... 
if you're going to play it, you've got to be sharp. You've got to be decisive. You've got to be strong. This is a team of nasty bastards, let's not forget. And you look at the way that they were kicking Ruben Diaz around the pitch uh, at the Etihad last week. They're not scared of anybody. So you're going to have to be up for the fight. And I think that might play into some of the manager's decisions as well. All the midfielders get booked, don't they, against City, for instance. I do wonder whether they might have a little look at one or two areas and think, do we mix it up? I think they'll be intrigued to know what Liverpool do with Trent because if there is space in behind there, whether it is Gordon or whether they look to Barnes as another option, you know, both of those players on the day can cause you problems. Mm. I, I take the point before about Gordon. He's, he's a bit of a weird footballer, to be honest. And I think what I've heard from Newcastle fans is that he's had a much better pre-season but there was times for Everton where he just looked like he'd never scored a goal again. And I think he just spent too much time on the floor and he was getting more bookings than he was goals. That said, though, if things click on on a given day, he can be a problem. He can be, just because he's got that pace and he can get in behind. But that said, Barnes can be a problem as well on his day. I think the next sort of phase of this one, Luke, for, from a Newcastle point of view before getting onto Liverpool is, you know, you said before about who will or won't be happier with a draw, is that... The manager, I think, is, if I say, showing up a little bit at City. I think he, he struggles to react to what City are doing. It's all very, very much same all over again. Keeps yeah. the shape, stays rigid, all of that sort of stuff. So it, it overstated to say make a show of, and also it's worth saying that they only get beat 1-0. Yeah. And the record there is really, really poor. And the one thing he might not have wanted was, was to get a bit of a hide in. But it felt like City could just keep them at arm's length. And he didn't seem to have a have a gear to to move those players into. And that's for me, that remains when I look at the Newcastle side. I think there's a lot of very good players in there. And maybe, just maybe, in, in Gameresh and Isaac. Yeah. Two very, very good players, possibly top, absolute top level players. We'll see on Tonali. But I think the rest of them, I'm not saying they're not all seven, eight out of ten, but I'm saying that none of them are more than eight out of ten, if you yeah. see what I mean. I think it's the group with Newcastle. We don't, we don't see many teams now where there's individuals that stand out. You look at City and, and it's like it's like a system, it's like a machine. You put someone in and you wear exactly the same as the play you've taken out. And I think not many teams go to City. It's, it, it's just levels above. I think, unfortunately, again, we're going to see City run away with the league, if not pushed by Arsenal. But I do think it's hard to judge a Newcastle team or any team for that instance. Even in the Champions League, we've seen it Real and Bayern last year. No one goes to City and out and out thinks out out fights them really. It's it's really hard to do, but I think certainly very well structured. And I think Liverpool and, and Newcastle, no disrespect to them, are quite a similar level. But I think if you look on paper, I'd always fancy Liverpool in a one-off game. But again, it's at St James's Park, so obviously they're flying again. Obviously they get beat, but again the atmosphere. But I don't think Liverpool are going to be intimidated by that. They're used to that, so I think we're in for an interesting game. I think it'll be a high-scoring game, to be honest. It's a few questions for Liverpool in, t- in terms of selection. Well, I'd make two changes. Um, what would you do? Um, yeah, I would uh, certainly two position changes. I think I'd be tempted if it had been one week. Ne- if it had been next week, I'd be tempted to start Stefan Bajcetic. But I think he's considering he's young, considering he's coming back from an injury, and considering all we've just said about the toughness and intensity of this game. I feel like giving him half an hour rather than full 90 minutes makes more sense. So I'm starting with Endo. I'm probably starting with um, Still McAllister, thank God, and Sobazai. Um The forward is the interesting one, isn't it? Because we saw the effects that Nunes had on the certain the backs of Newcastle last season. They didn't like him being in around him. It caused some chaos. But Newcastle will point to the fact that they're going to have Bruno and Tonali, neither of whom were playing in that game. Uh, and I feel like they'll feel like they'll be able to counter that a little bit better because they are brutes, Newcastle. That's I mean, I think six, three of them are over six foot in that back four. 
So trying to go pay um, physicality might not necessarily be the move. I am probably tempted to ask Gakpo, Gakpo to go back to being number nine and, and leave Jota from the bench, but it's it's a toss up. I think it's a really I think it's a really tricky one. We've just done the, the pre match warm up before, and the room was a little bit split in terms of Nunes and, and Gakpo. And I, th- I think you can make good cases for what about Jota? No one went with Jota in terms of starting. I think Jota's listen. He's a great footballer, and he's always got a goal in him. I think he's had an interesting start to the season where he becomes really good against Bournemouth and he gets that ever so important goal and he's got real form and habit for doing that and that's a that's a big commodity to have, someone who can just pop up and score goals. But I also think there's an argument where you could have took him off at a half time in both games um, because he wasn't really influencing either the Chelsea match or the Bournemouth match until about maybe 40 minutes and then he, he starts to make a little bit of uh, some inroads. But I do think... I think most points around Nunes is an interesting one because those centre-backs and even the full-backs, they're not built for for pace and he's winning the foot race. So if they do give space in behind, which they might not do, but if there are opportunities where he can get in behind, he'll cause problems. But I do think the manager will lean towards Gakpo as, mm. as that kind of you know nine-slash-false nine where he's coming in, doing his defensive bits as well. I think how the manager talks about Gakpo, he loves him in the team, he loves how Liverpool press... He loves what he does off the ball as well as on the ball. The only thing I thought before, and I was putting it to the boys, if you're not going to start Nunes in this one, I don't think he plays against Villa. And then you're at the international break. And then you've gone, you're into kind of mid-end of September before he's maybe started a game and maybe he's a little bit unhappy with that. That's one of those things. Liverpool have got loads of options in the forward position. So sometimes you've just got to cough for that and accept you've got to battle for your place. And when you get an opportunity, you've got to take it. But he might be thinking, I've had a really good pre-season. And I would have thought I would have got more opportunities and more minutes than what I've had so far. I what would you do, Neil? Out of interest, you'd go with Nunes, wouldn't you? I'd do Nunes and Enzo. Yeah, yeah no messing about. I, I, not even in a no messing about way. I think that if you accept even the notion that they're going to play Gamerish and, and, and Tanale, it means they're going to try and look after the ball a little bit more. And I think the main thing you want to do is you want to push them back. You want to have a big ball over the top, you want to scare the life out of them, and you want to say to those centre halves, I want them defending deep, I want them on mm. the edge of their own box going, we don't want this fella running in behind. That's what we want because then suddenly Tonali and Gamera have got more ground to cover. Then suddenly yes. they're getting stretched. Suddenly, I think you, if you play Nunes as well, I think you make it crystal clear that Dan Burns got a Mo Salah problem. But if he's got a Mo Salah problem, he's also got a Dominic Sabozlai problem. And before you know where you are, there's a mm. lot, a lot around him there to rub, to, to worry him and trouble him. And so I would think you have Gakpo on the bench. Yeah, Gakpo and Jota. I yeah. think for me, it's like the difference between making what you want to do work better and disrupting what they want to do. And I think Nunes disrupts them a lot more because Newcastle want to stay compact. They are probably the most compact of the big teams at the moment. They literally, if you watch them from above, they move like a squadron around the pitch. And if you've got that threat in behind, they can't really press up. And they're going to want to press us, particularly the way we started the last game. So it's like, it's giving them more of a risk reward. How how confident are you in what you do? And you mentioned the most sobers like I think that's another one because they do like to crowd the pitch. And if we've got Salah here and then you've got Zobas like overlapping him on the outside, they are naturally going to have to spread out and they don't want to do that. Yeah, I think it's one where you will end up almost playing a little bit more 4 2 3 1 from the outset if you're, if you're clever um, and you end up that with them, therefore going, we're not quite sure who's where in amongst all of this. But 
you, you know, I want Salah a little bit deeper because I want Dan Byrne having to put, come forward to deal with Salah, at which point you create more space, which Zobber's like and Phil, perhaps even Trent can fill, but Nunez can pull into as well. And I think that that's... City basically give Dan Byrne a massive headache and everything comes from that. And I think that, that I think I think it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of analysts have looked at them over the course of last season, Newcastle and circles, not because he's a dope, but because he's six foot seven and he's a little bit ungainly and all that sort of stuff, though that's where you can get at them. Do you think they may look at Livermento? City possibly sorry, Newcastle That's possibly, but the, but they've got Trippier. And I think that Trippier is so important to them to not play him in the big games difficult. But I mean they could swap the fullbacks, couldn't they? They can they can they can both play at either side. Certainly Trip- Trippier can. I'm just thinking because Dan Byrne looked like he really struggled, and I think him against Mo Salah, yeah, you'd be concerned if you're a Newcastle fan. On into Chelsea uh, versus Luton Town. Um it's the first game, the Friday night game, uh, Luke. Luton's mad week off sort yeah. of leads into this. You know, it can't be that good really for a team to to go into that. It's hard not to just look at it and feel as though Chelsea should have too much. But the one thing that Luton should have is it's the first big game Luton Town have had since coming back to the Premier League. And you'd at least expect to see them look to make it hard for Chelsea, look to har- harass them all over the pitch. Yeah, Chelsea look a little bit better. But again, there's like a lot of moving parts not working in cohesion. You've seen with the West Ham game, like there's glimpses staring, look like the stale and the vault. But then he still got beat 3-1. I don't think West Ham particularly played brilliantly. But then Luton, yeah, again, we've seen one game where they've been battered essentially in the first game. But So that gives them a bit of motivation at Stamford Bridge. But everyone's writing them off and there's not really much else you can say at the moment because we just simply haven't seen enough from them. Unless mm. people were watching them last season, which I wasn't enough, to be honest. But yeah, you'd think it's Chelsea result really, but could be a coupon buster. <laughs> it's it, it, no, it's a bit of a mad one for all that mo. I think in terms of not knowing really what Luton will look like Yet, yeah. as this stuff develops, the bit of a learning curve against Brighton. They do keep it tight. Well, they keep it low scoring for a period of time uh, before it sort of loosens. It wouldn't surprise me to see a similar pattern, though, in this where nil nil half time, possibly even, and then before, but you get to the end of the game and it's three or four. Yeah, um, definitely. I think obviously Chelsea are going to go into any game against Luton favourites, but all of the little things can increase that potential for a win for Luton. So the Friday night, the big game. Uh, the fact that Chelsea got beat last week, you can say that obviously they wouldn't want a big break in the, when they've only had one game and it was a defeat, but they've also had all week to work on this. And <laughs> yeah, you can say it's hard to work on Chelsea because you don't know who's playing, but you can work on shape and system. And if you look at Luton, for the most part, when they last season, they have three at the back, they have two up front, and you've got your wing backs. And then the variety comes in how you congregate the three midfielders in the middle. I think that's still going to be the way they want to play it. But they can get in amongst them. Like you say, it can make it difficult for Chelsea. Chelsea are still a little bit on the back foot. Obviously, not only did they lose that game, they lost that game with 76% of the ball. So if you're losing, you're thinking, well, we can let them have the ball. and As long as when we get the chances, we take them, we're still going to be in this game. Sterling was that good though last weekend, Ian. It was it was a startling performance. I thought he was incredible, especially first half. But he was he was virgin on unplayable at times. Yeah, you'd have to say maybe the first time in in twelve months that he's looked anywhere near that level. He was frightening. He really was frightening. He was back to his old self. And listen, he couldn't live with him. But it didn't it didn't translate into goals for Chelsea. That said, I think they're looking at this one and thinking there should be goals in the form. I mean, Brighton. It only ends up four one and. Luton get the late penalty, but Brighton have nearly 30 shots. It's over 70% possession. They're absolutely battering them, and Luton are hanging in there. And I think if you're a Luton fan, you probably 
well, you are hugely disappointed that Burnley game couldn't go ahead. Just to maybe get you off the mark a little bit and make you feel a little bit better about everything. And if you're Rob Edwards, you're probably thinking, fucking hell, I've had hard lines here. Brighton away. And they can do that to pretty much anyone. And then you've got Chelsea. And I know Chelsea are a bit of a, a mixed bag, but it is still a new manager. At some point, you'd imagine something's going to click there. And I think someone like Jackson, I've been quite impressed with. I know he's not really got off the mark or anything, but in terms of his running and his movements, he's a threat. I think there's definitely a relationship there between him and Sterling. And I think you'd have to say Chelsea are going to have too much. Uh, move on, 12.30, Bournemouth face Tottenham. Um, I think it's be a cracker, Ian. I think it's really interesting. Bournemouth were good until they ran out of legs at Anfield and clearly had a bit of a plan. The manager was interested in post-match about what he'd learned from it, take from it. But Spurs were good when they got going against United. They didn't really get going first 45. I'm very, you know, with them. I, I, I think Tottenham, I'm still of the view in the general sense, Tottenham may well surprise people a little bit more I think that the the notion they were going to stay at the level they were at last season in any sort of way I felt was always overstated um, and I also feel as though it just doesn't take much for Tottenham to start to enjoy it again a bit more and I think that'll make a massive difference for the whole football club but I think this will be a game that they will have to enjoy the ups and downs of because Bournemouth are going to get amongst them Yeah I've heard you say this season or maybe earlier on before the campaign got started that if you're a Tottenham fan, you just want to enjoy it. And I think that's a that's a message that probably most of the fans would kind of back, really, because it has looked pretty miserable uh, for a number of years now. And I suppose that's you know part of being a Tottenham fan in, in many respects. But I do like the manager. Now, you don't know how it's going to pan out over the kind of, you know, medium to long term, but it looks like he's coming and give everyone a bit of a lift. I think Madison was ever so impressive against United. Now, he's got a bit of a knock, hasn't he? So I think if he is out... That's a that's a bit of a blow. I thought Richarlison's struggled, if I'm honest. Uh, I don't think Kuliszewski's quite kind of got that form that he was maybe showing and demonstrating when he first joined the club. So maybe there is a, a goals issue there for, for Spurs that, that they're going to have to have an eye on. Obviously, they've lost Kane, which is a massive chunk of goals. And, you know, for all, for all Son's good work, him on his own, he's never going to replace that amount of goals. But it does look better. I do think, though, they are a team that, if you look at that back line, it does present you with opportunities and I think if you are Bournemouth you maybe are expecting one or two opportunities and I thought they were good at Anfield certainly for the first 20-25 they do run out of legs a little bit but I think it is a manager who relishes the challenge when he's coming up against the big clubs and I think in in one or two players they've got there people like Solanke people like Billing they can cause you a problem they can cause you a physical problem you know, they can rough you up a little bit so I agree Neil it's an intriguing one For Spurs Luke do you think they need to think about moving swapping Charleston and Son? that the smart move could be Richarlison to play from the left-hand side? Or do you think that he'd be better served with Tottenham playing through the middle? I think I think through the middle. I think Son, it's, that's traditionally his position on the left-hand side. And I think then to, to, to disrupt that and move in, him in as well. But I think they need to gel still as a team. They, they've had the whole pre-season with Harry Kane and suddenly he's left. So obviously they may plan for that. And I think Postacoglu is coming across like... It's, it's a bit fresh, there's like new exuberance to them, to Spurs. I think they'll be quite exciting. I think traditionally you think of Spurs as a good team in the Cups and they're quite an entertaining team, but we they sort of lost that. It was a bit stale under Conte and Mourinho. But I, I think this season, it, it kind of takes the pressure off them, the fact Kane's gone. They haven't got that 30-goal-a-season striker, so it may spread out throughout the team. I think Madison will be pivotal to them this season, but Richarlison's a, a very much a confidence player, and I think... Once he gets into a run of games where he's playing well, I think he needs to be loved as well by the fans. I don't think he is yet, but you know he's Brazil's number nine. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but once he starts mm. banging the goals in, I think we'll see a different Spurs. 
I think it does seem important that they find a way to get him going, Mo. The thing that I thought was interesting watching the United game back was they found it hard to find him. Yeah. And I think that's that's what would concern me more than anything. They couldn't find him. And that's that, you know, you've got to be able to get him on the ball. Richarlison, he's not a number nine who doesn't want to be involved. He wants to be at the centre of everything. You know, that's yeah. the nature of him as a player. As you know, as Luke says, he wants to be loved, he wants to be involved, he wants to feel he's he's at the the, the, the crux of this. Yeah. And I thought that that was something for them. I, I do wonder whether or not, you know, Spurs over a period of time, it's interesting to me. He went with Pape Sar next to Basuma. Mm. But let's be clear. He wasn't next to Basuma. Basuma sat and Saar went. And I just sort of wonder if where they could end up here, Tottenham is, is needing to play another more progressive central midfielder in order to be able to get the ball to Richarlison more often. Yeah, um, it's, it is strange because I feel like that Basuma-Saar axis is probably the most steady and probably all-round um, quality that they've had for quite some time. It's ironic that they've had to lose Kane in order for it to kind of materialise. Um, but I think with the two of them, they do both have the ability to be the one who sits and one who leaves. So I don't know, but they are more ball carriers than ball passers. Maybe they do need someone a little bit deeper. Obviously, at their best, Ericsson was able to go into deep spaces. You do think Madison's going to want to join the forward line more often than not. He might be more reluctant to sit deeper and, and, and kind of dictate play from there. So maybe they need another kind of uh, metronome. Obviously, back the, uh, way back when, they were hoping that Harry Wings would grow into that and he hasn't. Well, they've got Benton Cole, but he's still not fully fit. He is still not They've fully got, fit. you know, you sort of go through the Spurs. I, this is why I think the Spurs squad's really interesting in that the manager inherits them. And there's a lot of lads who've looked like footballers for at least split seconds who've ended up falling out of favour. So, you know, you, you can sort of go through a bit of a list and go, mm. well, he's a player, and he's shown he's a player, and he's shown he's a player. So, for instance, Lo Celso's made a couple of benches, but they've chosen not to use and him. Dombele and Dombele's still knocking around the place. He hasn't got a move yet. As I say, Benton Cork could get himself back fit. I feel like there's... Like, I, I wonder if it might be easier to be Postacoglu post, post the transfer window closing yeah. because then you've got who you've got. And we've all got to make yeah. the best of it till January yeah. so we then have a look at and a couple. And he's very much that kind of guy. I think one of the reasons why Spurs fans have warned to him and why I think he will do well there is that he knows what's really important. He really does not concern himself with the drama, the bullshit, all of the other kind of external noise that normally goes around football clubs, particularly ones led by the likes of Conte and Mourinho. He is anti that. He is like, are you a good player? Can you do a job for me? Then I want you in my team. And that kind of bluntness but allows everybody to know exactly where they stand. Those who maybe felt like they would need to move away to progress their career feel like they can get another chance. And... You want to work for a guy like that. You want to impress him. You want to fight for him. So when he's in there and he's first laying down his philosophy, you want to buy into it. And it looks like everybody there is buying into it. How you get Richardson firing question is interesting because you're right. He does... If he's not getting the ball within the team system, he is more likely to start freestyling. And that can be good and bad. Uh, looks a bit pissed off, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He always does. Yeah. He was like that at Everton. He loves mm. a fight. And I think Spurs, their fans need to get behind that and mm. back that. And I think that you, sometimes you can see it when he does take on centre-halves and gets into those battles and gets in their head and he can, he can start to kind of feed off of that. But I do think you might be onto something with the whole idea of him and Son switching because... The other thing that can get him going is if you just get him out the ball more, get him out wide, get him faced up against the fullback and say, you just terrorise this kid for the next 10 minutes. Yeah, I think what's really interesting on the fight point, Luke, is I think he loves nothing more than, for instance, being walloped. 
yeah. if you know what I mean. And I, th- I wonder if centre halves are playing them quite cleverly, almost like not really, not really falling for it. Whereas I tell you what, fullbacks are idiots. That's why they're not centre halves. <laughs> One of them absolutely going through and might might be the sort of thing that. And I, I think that the way Bournemouth play, I think it might suit the Charles. And I actually think this might be a weekend where the Charles puts a bit of a performance in because if they're going to try yeah. and get in everyone's face, which is what Bournemouth did at Anfield, it's what they did in the first game against West Ham. Be aggressive, be high press, win it back. I think that might suit. It might suit Richarlison. Yeah, I do think we see it with other players as well, like Diego Costa. Like if you give him a shove in the back, it just also like wakes up the beast a little bit. Yeah. Richarlison's always been like that, but I think that sort of clouds the water. He's a very good footballer on his yeah. day. He's a very good finisher. I mean a lot of got a lot of games at Everton, he'll get them half chances. He doesn't snatch at them, but he certainly did not Everton. But once again, I think it's just simply the confidence. Coming up now, we've got uh, Robbie Scotcher. Uh, Palace go to Brentford. It's a very big day for Robbie Scotcher. Uh, later on, uh, he gets married. But before then, he has a conversation with me. Uh, yes. Palace Association Football, Crystal Palace. Big game coming up at the weekend, obviously, for Palace. Bit of an interesting start to the season. A couple of players like Dewey, including Eze. Uh, Elise held on to this time out. Uh, Eze supposedly on, uh, on Manchester City's radar, around, along with Nunez. And the game on... Monday night, where I think Palace, Robbie, simultaneously had hard lines, but sort of got what they deserved, in that they just don't quite create enough when when Arsenal go down to 10. They find themselves quite easily repelled uh, in there. But ultimately, it's still a sort of a creditable performance from Palace's point of view. No one should be worried about anything, don't get me wrong. Is that all fair? Yeah, I, I think it was one of those really frustrating performances from Roy where he just went, let's just lose 2-0. And that's just, it, it seemed like we didn't set out to be adventurous. We didn't have any creativity. I, I did think that, obviously, Arsenal are a great football team and um, they're going to be there towards the end and they've got a great midfield, they've got great attacking players. But actually, I, I thought we did a good job of keeping it quite close, keeping the game close. But yeah, I mean, we, we didn't really do anything up top. We lacked creativity. And I, I mean, we, we deserve to lose. We didn't deserve anything from the game. But that that was the danger with Roy: that one win, one draw, one loss keeps you up. That's the pattern. And yeah, um, but there again, he, he does need some more players coming in. He, we do need a striker. And I mean, the Elise say things interesting though, because I don't think you can underestimate how good that is for a player to just turn around and say, "No, nah, I'm staying here." not going to Chelsea, not having it. And I thought that was a really amazing bit of business from Palace. I thought how they, I mean, obviously it makes sense. It clearly makes sense because the player's going to come back from being having a bad injury and then he's going to play himself back into fitness and he'll probably go at the end of the season. But, you know, it's not been like that. And Chelsea have been bullying people a little bit with their uh, with their tactics in the transfer window. And I actually thought, I, I thought it was a really positive thing. And at the end of the day, <laughs> That made me forget about the Arsenal result. <laughs> yeah, I can, <laughs> I can understand that. I think there's the, the funny Palace thing, like Liverpool at the minute are linked to Czech Decore. I think that Joachim Anderson is one of the best centre-halves in the league who doesn't play for a, a classic top six side, or if you want to even include Newcastle in that, that's fair. Um, Mark Gay is a really good player. Um, yeah. I love Ta- Tarek Mitchell. I actually thought he was one who came out of the Arsenal game with with massive credit, and that I thought he was constantly dangerous from, from a left-back position in there. Uh, and Eze is a lovely footballer to watch. And the thing here is, I've just named six players who I think are more than good enough to play for sides who are playing European football. All the ones yeah. I, th- I think are more than good enough, and other people think so as well. And what surprises me, Robbie, therefore, is that 
Palace on closer to looking like a team who can play European football, if you see what I mean. And I'm not just putting that down to the manager either. I think there's, I think there's, in terms of first 11, not even squad, and none of this is about effort. So Jordan Ayew is trying his very best at all times and he helps Palace and he helps Palace get up a pitch and he helps them play a certain type of football and he draws free kicks and he works hard and he closes down well. But he really should no longer be in the same team as Eze. And that can sound like a really harsh statement. But when I watch Palace, that's sort of what I'm thinking. Why are five or six of these really, really good and five or six of these not at the, anywhere near the level of the other five or six? Well, I mean... I mean- you, you've got to think sometimes. I, I think the league's changed. I think it's a top nine and a bottom eleven. Yeah, so do I. I, I. I think it's a very different. It's a very different league than it was three or four years ago. And you know, if Palace could afford players and bring players through that didn't get snapped up, then we we might be playing European football. But that's that that's kind of the nature of the league. And in terms of what we've got and how we're blooding players in, we've got we bought a new guy, a, a Brazilian footballer who at the moment yeah. is still injured. Elise's injured. You know, I doesn't play if those players are fit. So, so you've got one of those situations. You've got a lad coming in, and what Ayu does exceptionally well is he wins that free kick. Yeah, he takes that pressure off. He, he's also, I mean, I, how the Arsenal lad got sent off, I do not know. That's absolutely ridiculous. But you know, he's got the lad sent off. It's changed the game. What well, the game's changed in a way, actually, kind of for the worse, because it meant Arsenal just sat back, kept the one 0 lead, and we didn't really push on. We probably needed them to keep coming at us to get a breakaway, but. In terms of players like Ayu, it's just so Palace. I mean, right now, if you look at who we're going to buy as a centre-forward, the players, Ian Acho, we're looking at players that might get you 10 goals a game. We can't get a 20 goals a game player unless we bring them through the academy. So it's that's the difference in the league. Do you know what I mean? You know, that's why we won't be playing European football. And that's why it's interesting you, you mentioned before about the, the win one, lose one, draw one nature of all of this because Brentford away at the weekend is one of the most more winnable, not most winnable, more winnable away games for Palace. And yet, when you're talking about the, the top nine and the bottom 11, Brentford are probably top of the bottom 11. So it's not it's not as straightforward a game or as easy a game as it might be on paper. But it's a good marker, I think. The reason why I think it's quite a significant game is I think if Brentford cruise to a relatively easy victory, then it tells us a lot about where Brentford are at the minute and where Palace are. Whereas if Palace can get something out of it, then I think it tells us a bit that, that Palace are up with Brentford. I don't think Palace are going to be down with anyone, let's be clear about this, because of how poor yeah. the likely bottom five are going to be. But that the Palace have, have got real interest in being at the top of that 11 if they can get something out of Brentford. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, what I want in the Brentford game is I want us to have a go. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, I understand at Arsenal that you're not going to... I know they're coming to Palace. I know it's a Monday night. I know it's on telly. Fans are up for it. But if we go, go gung-ho against Arsenal, they're going to beat us 5-0 because they're that good. Yeah. But Brentford, absolutely. We, I mean, Brentford are a fantastic football club. I, I actually live not too far away from Brentford. And the greatest compliment I can give to Brentford is... Near where I live, there's Chelsea fans, football, you know, there's loads of different football fans. Every kid in the street's got a Brentford top on. That goes to show how good that club is. That kid, and it's a fantastic football club and they they run it well, they play well, they uh, the manager's fantastic, the team's good, they pick good players, but this is exactly a game that we should go to and we should have a go. And we 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 should be expected to want to win the game. We should go there with the expectation of trying to get three points. And yeah, the the danger, I think, or the thing that I'd never liked about Roy before is there are games when he just tries not to lose. Yeah. And I, I'm okay with that with Arsenal. I'm not okay with that with Brentford. 
And, you know, who knows? We've not played the game yet. We, we might turn up and actually win 10-0. <laughs> I want to... I mean, the, the, the lad who comes on just briefly caught my eye a little bit the other night, uh, Raksaki. Um, if that's the right way to pronounce his name, Raksaki. He looks... What a touch. You know, straight away you can go, this is a football, a real balance. Is he the next one off the, the Palace conveyor belt? Because he looked to me to be something special quite quickly. He's mustard. He, he, he was at Charlton last uh, year in the Championship, scored a lot of goals for Charlton. Um, he, he's a good forward. He's quick. He's been with us a long time and everyone was hoping he's going to break through. And one of the big things about losing Zaha is there is a chance for someone to step up and they are leaving the door open for him to do it. And I do think he's got the ability to be a Premier League footballer. W- will he get the game time? I don't know. Um, but he does have the ability to step up. He can play at the level. And yeah, he's, 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 a, hey, look, he's, a, t- he's a typical Palace player. You know, he's a quick tricky winger that's he's exactly that he's so palace so i mean i can't wait to see more of him yeah do you think he might get a start at the weekend i was wondering with it or, or, or maybe even not at the weekend the game after i noticed is, is wolverhampton wanderers at home do you think there might be the the desire to to, to to pop him into either of those two i think the first start you'll see is in a cup yeah well there's there's plymouth midweek in the cup isn't there so what yeah you know, if he yeah. does well enough against plymouth do you think he could keep his place no Okay, there we go. I, 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 I just, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'll say in one word. No, not a chance. No, I, I, again, I think that's I think that's Roy's defensive mind just going. All right, you've got the trickery, you've got that, but can you help Tyrick out on the uh, on the on the left wing uh, left wing there? And I don't I, I don't know if he's going to let him do that. I, I think he'd prefer Ayu because of those fouls that Ayu wins. But I mean, look, you know, we've got so many people looking at our players. As soon as Elise comes back. That means you're not double marking Eze, which means Eze is released, which means the ball can move quicker, which means we can start playing that Palace football. We need our top players to play. You know, we can't afford to have our best players sitting on the bench. What you're what you're seeing right now is a Crystal Palace team that's not at full capacity, and the one at full capacity is brilliant to watch. Um, all right, then uh, last little thing is you've you got your speech done. No, I've got to do it in a minute. <laughs> You were doing this first. You thought your priorities are right. So, what, 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 <laughs> what are the uh, what are, what's the tone? What's the what, what, what are we going with? Is the tone for the speech? Um, I, you've, got play, you've got you've got to play it straight down the line. I'm saying it's you, exactly. It's a, risky, it's a risky man who deviates. I think I'm, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go for a solid start. I'm going to push on through. I'm going to hit the emotions and ramp it up towards the end. And then what I plan to do right before the very end is just put the pressure on the best man to make sure everyone knows it's got to be good. That's that's exactly what we want, and let's hope that Palace do something similar to Brentford uh, on Saturday. <laughs> Robbie's got you. Have a wonderful day, Robbie, and thank you so much for Cheers, being here. Thank way. you very much. Thanks to Robbie, and we're back, uh, Everton, uh, with Luke. Luke, I think there's you talked last time, and I thought it was. Really, I was really pleased you said it. Actually, it's something I've thought for a while, and I want to expand it a little bit. It, it, it's talking about the generation sort of gap question at Everton because. I do think there's. I think it's the thing, one of the defining things of Everton across the last ten years. I think you can take it. When I say generation gap, I think it's a mindset point because first and foremost, I don't think we're just talking about one generation. Uh, yeah. But I think you can take it all the way to someone like Bill Kenwright on the one hand, and where Everton supporters find themselves. And I thought it was really interesting when you brought it up, and it, it made me think about it a fair bit. That a lot of, I think there's a lot of younger people at Everton who just really want Everton to be a very well-run football club that makes sensible decisions and wins games. 
yeah. you know, in a, and, and what will be will be, and it'll take a bit of time and all that sort of stuff. And it seems to me as though a lot of what's actually gone on and gone wrong at Everton, I think more than just the last five, six years, but we can, let's just focus on Mishiri sort of periods, is the idea of, has been the idea of, we can have a quick fix and straight away be competing back with the big boys overnight. And I think a lot of that's summed up in that generational gap thing where there's some, there's, there's, there's a ma- an Evertonian mindset that's about, it needs to be part of a process and there's one who's been about it needs to be quick fixes. Yeah. And in the end, the ones who think it needs to be about quick fixes, that's why the stories like there is being published in The Athletic. I think a lot of people, certainly the older generation at Everton, in the board, there's, there's sort of jobs for the boys, so to speak. It's like Graham Sharp there last season, what he was doing, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah. And then they're tarnishing their legacy, reputation in a way. My memory of Graham Sharp is that he was on that board, not the fact he was winning that league, for example. But then I think you've got the older generation thinking, no, that's Graham Sharp, he's one of our heroes. And you can see you can see it on Twitter, on social media, there's arguments amongst the fan base. And then like sort of my generation, the younger generation, we're seeing well-run clubs like uh, Brighton, Brentford, even Fulham to an extent now, they're progressing past Everton. And I think that we, we see, but it's certainly not an institution. I think our fans don't see us as that. We just want to be. We just want to have some bragging rights. Mm. Certainly, we're never going to be better than Liverpool. We're not better than the, the other clubs in the northwest around us. But we can't just continually be by that trap door because if you play around with that, you're going to fall through it sooner or later. So do you think do you think that the thing that's done the club in now, because that's what I see from the outside, has been that you look at those, those clubs you mentioned there, Brighton, Brentford, you're a bit like, well, they've got a long-term plan. Yeah. And Everton, to me, it's never looked like a long-term plan. And I reckon younger supporters and younger in mindset supporters, I want to be clear about that, have always been more committed to the idea of, we'll have a long-term plan because yeah. well, we're going to be here for the long-term, we're looking forward to it, we'll get to see some good players. And then there's other people going, hang on, how come, I mean, in the end, it flips the other way later in the season, so don't get me wrong, everything in football makes you look at it eventually. But how can Brighton come to our place and win 4-1? Yeah. It's just... I think there's no, there is no plan, but every football club that's successful now has a plan. City were taken over in 2008, and look at them now. It takes time, no matter how much money you try and spend. It takes me back to a game where, I think it was 2014, 2015, um, we beat Villa uh, 3-0 away. Our fans were singing about how rich we were. And at the time, you just look at us now and you think, that was so stupid, you've got this billionaire coming in. We, and we can't fault him, he has poor money and he spent nearly 750 million, I think. In transfers, you can't say he hasn't tried, but again, that's going back to the recruitment process. You look at Tony Bloom at Brighton, how well they do everything, and the data that they use. It's like, are our, like, are we going on football manager at our, our like, board and choosing players that look a certain way and have certain attributes? It's just bizarre to watch. There's just no plan whatsoever. It seems now like it's, Luke, it's interesting, the manager today, and I felt a bit sorry for the manager today when I, when I went through the questions he was asked, because he's asked stuff that... He simply can't answer. And I think yeah. that in general, we do that to football managers now. Stuff comes out and because the only club figures that get put up for press conferences tend to be uh, managers themselves, they end up having to answer to everything at the club. Mm. But it looks to me now like he's there, whether he's good or bad, he's there having to deal with the wreckage of a lot of this. He's very clear there isn't the money or the capability to do deals beyond the 19-year-olds, that he's finding it all you know, quite difficult. He's trying to get the best out of the players. I think the way he answers the questions doesn't help himself, though. I think the fan base is already starting to be divided. That would be even worse if we get beat on Saturday. But he answers the questions in a way where he's not actually really giving an answer. It's like a politician's answer, in a way, at times. And I just think, like, we've signed a 19-year-old Schmitty. Why? Like, if he's not fit enough and he's not going to be thrown in straight away, like, what what are we waiting for? Why have you not signed two more experienced players that we need? Because... 
he doesn't really have time to give you for chance and if it doesn't work straight away it's just it's so frustrating to be honest yeah I mean it's hard to disagree isn't it I mean I think what I've picked up recently just looking out you know stuff online and listen it's not always a, a good way to kind of benchmark stuff but it does feel like even at this early stage people are starting to turn a little bit on the manager okay, now which yeah. Which is interesting. Obviously, you know, it keeps them up last year. But we did a show, um, the one you're you're alluding to, Neil, and I was on it with Lucas. Well, I think Jim was on it as well. And I looked at Everton's first four games, and I think maybe one or two were looking at them thinking, well, there's a chance to make a bit of hay there. But I looked at them and thought, and this is always the case when you know a club's in trouble, where you can look at pretty much every game and paint a bit of a picture where they could get turned over. And I felt it would go that way against Fulham, even though they end up having about 19, 20 shots and nearly double figures in terms of on target. It felt like one of them where they're just going to get picked off. And some of this does come back to the fact that they've got no recognised centre-forward and then Calvert-Lewin gets himself back fit, comes off against Villa. It's massive hard lines in one respect, but you also know that Calvert-Lewin's that type of footballer where he's just going to miss more games than he plays. And you look at the game against Wolves at the weekend, and I know they get battered at home but if you look at their performance against Manchester United there's no way Everton can put a performance in that match as that they just can't now they've got similar issues in that they can't, both can't score goals and they're both missing front, uh, front players but if you look at Wolves team there's still our lads there on any given day who can do something quite special and pop up with a goal so sitting here right now mm. I think it's really hard to make a case for Everton to get a result or certainly three points against Wolves and then you look at Sheffield United the week after and you're thinking I think Sheffield United might be favourites for that game that's one of their home games where they're looking at it and going, we fucking fancy this today. It's half 12. It's the second home game. They're not getting anything against Manchester City, Sheffield United, in the first home game. So they're identifying that and going, right, if you're not up for the fight, and I think this is the thing now where I almost saw a, a bit of a lack of fight so, at Villa Park. So this, I want to come I want to come to Luke on this because I think there's something, I think there's something, again, on this generation gap point and sort of accepting the moment that Everton are in, Luke versus people who want Everton to be in a different moment and just wish the world was different rather than accepting it. Because what would worry me over the course of the season is, is the way it feels around Everton because ultimately Villa are probably the eighth or ninth best team in the country once yeah. it's all done and there's a 4 nil in there and the way the, Luke, the league's ended up being structured I think there's nine teams who've got really really good players who could go into who could be genuine Champions League contenders in any of the other big five leagues in Europe if you just drop them in and then you you go down the table there and then there's a bottom 11 and Everton are somewhere in that bottom 11. They might be, you know, they might be third from bottom, fourth from bottom, fifth from bottom or sixth from bottom. But I think everyone in that bottom 11 is going to have days where they go to somewhere like Villa Park yeah. and get done the way Everton got done. And it's how everyone built, picks themselves up after that. And mm, I think that, yeah. but what's, that's why I think like, not, not only is this a really important game for Everton against Wolves on Saturday, it's actually a really important first half an hour because if they do show a lack of fight, I think there'll be so many people going mad in the crowd that it'll be difficult to pull it back around. So I, as you said, it's a lack of fight. I don't think it is a lack of fight. I do you think, think it's a lack players, of quality? I just think they're simply not good enough. There's no plan. Nothing changes tactically. There's no one to really bring... Like Calvert-Levin's going off and you're bringing Dan Juma on up front. He's not really a striker. Don't get me wrong, he's done all right, but... Are you really relying on that? I just mm. think it has to start. Well, Goodison will be toxic. Obviously, after the news of like the investment talks breaking down as well of MSP, it's just it's not but negative. Like if you ask me what's a positive about Everton this season, it's sort of like we haven't had a pre-season and the end of last season just continued again, and that happened again the season before that. It's it's just it's hard mm. to look at how we pull ourselves out of it, and the only saving grace could be Luton and Sheffield United just a crap. Hopefully. We aren't much better, but I think Wolves would be the same. I also do think Bournemouth may be down there as well. 
But again, we shouldn't really be talking about six pointers at this point in the season, but it may well be that. Okay, here's a hot take, but hear me out. So, I feel like Everton might have got close to the point where they're actually better off getting relegated. Now, all of this kind of feeds into what you guys have been saying about what their expectations are, who they are, who they want to be. Mm. All of the successful clubs know who they are. Your Fulham's, your Brentford's, your Brighton's. They know who they are. They know the level that they're at. Everybody is on the same page about that. Everton are this story club who've never, ever gone down. Never, ever gone down. Always been part of the Premier League. Always able to see themselves as part of the elite. And that is what's clouding this judgment. That's not allowing them to be able to all be on the same page. And... Again, the other thing I'll put to that, look at the difference between the teams who have been big teams who have gone through that stagnant period and are now back on top. Newcastle, Manchester City. What did they both do? They both got relegated. Like, with Man City, they got relegated twice. In fact, Newcastle got relegated twice, just only one division. Financially, though, Mo, they, they all got, got took down. over. I mean, that's the key. The, the, yes. the key cut yeah. pedometer is that they got took over. And also the idea of what going down financially could do to Everton. Yeah. yeah. Yes, Granted, but I think all of those financial issues are going to still be live in the Premier League anyway. And yes, you can say Premier League money is everything, but Mm. if that Premier League money is allowing them to still make bad decisions because they think, oh, well, we'll, the Premier League money will save us, then you're going to get into even deeper and deeper problems. Then by the time you do get relegated, it's going to be worse. It might be a case of you just rip off the Band-Aid now. Start again. Luke, then, Ian, Luke. We don't want to. We don't want to get stuck though, because we've seen that with, seen that with Sunderland, for example. We've seen that with Wolves a few years Stoke. ago. Stoke, Stoke, yeah. We've seen it with Leeds. You go as low as League One, like Everton Football Club should be nowhere near no. League One. Never mind the Championship. But again, I, I do get your point in a way where we sort of have to take a step back to take two more forward because as long as we're in the Premier League, we gotta. There is that expectation, but once you do go to the Championship, you're like. It's sort of a relief how it's happened now. We can start to rebuild and model ourselves a bit more rather than scraping all the time to stay in the league with no plan. Because if Deitch goes, who do we bring in then? We can't bring in the Graham Potter. I just don't think it's a fit at the moment. I don't think we're ambitious enough as a club. And I think a few bad results, the exact same thing happens. The same happened with Lampard. It's just, I don't see a way out of it. There's no solution. I think the manager's got to try and help himself a little bit. And what I mean by that is... Every Evertonian I spoke to, and including on some of these shows, everyone knew that Michael Keane was going to be a car crash. And I think they would have got behind Branthwaite. Now, he might not pan out that kid. I know he goes to PSV and has a good time. But I think even if he comes in and he made a mistake, I think Evertonians would have got behind that decision that there's a bit of faith in young players. But going back to that centre-half pairing, Mm. he just knew it was going to cause problems. And I take Luke's point about... There's an obvious lack of quality there. But I was seeing things in that filler game, and I know it gets to 4-0 where players just look like they chucked it in a little bit at the end. And I, you don't want to see that. And there are players who've got a bit of quality. You talk about Anana. He's been spoken about as getting a big move or potentially getting a big move. Fucking hell. But on the first two games, mm. he's been a fucking mile off it against Villa. He was a mile off it. And I do think he has got quality and he can bring certain things to a football match. But he's got to show more. Awobi's got to show more. The Corey, who is a decent footballer and scores that goal that keeps them up, he's got to show more. Mm. There are players there who, yes, there's a lack of quality, but I also think it feels like 
there's more than one that are feeling sorry for themselves, and they've got they've that. got to get out of that funk because you know Wolves under a new manager will come well, and have a, and have a proper go. What was interesting again, come back to you on Luke on this one, James Garner, who I think ended last season well and yeah. actually has played quite well whenever well, when I've caught Evan in the two games so far this season. I think he's played well. He, like he's clearly a footballer. He gets the ball. He looks after yeah. it. All that sort of stuff. It was interesting. He gave an interview to the Echo this week where he was like, "I'm looking around the dressing room, and a lot of these lads have been quite badly hurt. You know, they've suffered. He used the word suffered. I'm looking around, and they've suffered. And I, I am surprised. You know, I think there is an argument the manager does could do with going to the younger players, not even out of any grand thing, but also they've not all played and found it hard. If yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I, I think, I, I think he's mad if he doesn't start around the weight against Wolves because I think everyone will get behind it. Everyone will get behind him. Everyone will get behind the whole thing. I think you've got to. I think if, if it's going to be new, you need to pick new players, just sort of know what I mean. Yeah, mm. it's a nice game to put them in. But it's not a nice game, but at least it's not like a city at all. Yeah. It's like a game where, yeah, it could be end-to-end, but they're not a lot better than us. But again, we see him at Bramford. He played in the game against Brentford two years ago. We got sent off. We got a bit outwitted that day by Tony. I'm his last man, and then he got shipped off to PSV. So... Where's his header? Like, yeah, no, do you know what fair. I mean? He's not mm. really been given much of a chance at all, in, even in pre-season. But, yeah. Okay. Uh, I think the other thing to point out, Wolves did okay, actually, against Brighton. Uh, so. But they can also feel very sad here very quickly. Uh, Wolves' general feeling of sadness is the thing that they need to avoid. Um, Goodison Park on Saturday will be a difficult place to be. Uh, but I think if Everton can get all three points, it'll... It won't necessarily kickstart a season, but it isn't then impossible to imagine Evan having six points off the first two games, which right now obviously feels very, very unlikely, but the the two games back-to-back can be useful for them. Thanks to Luke for talking about that. It's not easy to blue to come on a Liverpool-based podcast and do that sort of thing. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's show that some respect. Uh, here's Rich Ferraro on Nottingham Forest. I've got Rich Ferraro uh, from uh, 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast. Uh, very good to be joined by him. Uh, on this occasion to talk about uh, Nottingham Forest 2, Sheffield United 1 and and Rich. It was a game where I expected Forest to be much the better side. Um, you don't think they were as good against Sheffield United as they should have been? Um, well, so uh, we were just discussing before uh, before we came on air that it wasn't as dominant as you would hope for the first home match of the season against a newly promoted team where Forrest would have to class themselves as being favourites. However, I would say that Forrest probably were worth the victory. Um, obviously, scoring early and late is always a bonus. Um, <laughs> so that, that that helps because, uh, I mean, and then scoring in, in, as you're approaching stoppage time with an actually very quality header from a much maligned centre-forward is also something that I think will hopefully uh, stand us in good stead. So he remains much maligned, uh, Chris. Oh, yeah. Is there, is, there not, is there the opportunity for him to build on this, do you think? Do you think that you can you can get a run in the side or do you think he is just going to be in this position where he is he is thought of negatively and very much in Iwaniwi's shadow? Yeah, I would say so. I, I mean, Taiwo is is the first choice number nine. He's earned that right as well. Um, what we do have to think about is that, as with every team, you cannot get through an entire season without injuries. So, having an experienced number nine waiting in the wings is very a very good thing. What the issue is with Wood is that he doesn't have the mobility that Taiwo has. Taiwo is strong and looks a bit clumsy but he's got that ability to roll defenders um what chris wood doesn't have so he doesn't have the pace but he's probably slightly better in terms of finding those right moments and the goal that he scored was a really good example because he was in the right place and it was the finish of somebody who knows where the back of the net is 
It was an interesting selection, I thought, uh, for, for for this one against Sheffield United. I, I had a little look, obviously, as people do on predicted teams. And there was when we talked at the start of the season, you talked about flipping between a four and a three. To me, I'm interested he sticks with the, th- with, the with a back three in that one because I, I wonder if it's in part because he had an eye on this weekend's fixture coming up against Manchester United and in the following weekend's fixture away at Chelsea that he thinks to himself, well, I'm playing a I'm playing a back three for the first game of the season away at Arsenal. I may as well stick with the back three for Sheffield United off the basis that the, the lads are going to have to play it in the two afterwards as well. And I wonder if that was part of his thinking against Sheffield United because there is an argument you are an attacker light for much of the game. And it's fascinating to me when you have a little look at, you know, his first sub is Bolly, Bolly off and, and, and Alanger on, uh, on 69, which suggests he wanted to change it and go more progressive. But do you think that that is his mindset is this is just the way we're playing for the first four? Because my God, those are three difficult away games to have at the start of the campaign. Well, what we've done is we've discussed um, in pre-season, haven't we, about uh, Cooper used the low block last season and he he ended up having to kind of revert to different tactical operations about three times last season, just as Forrest struggled with getting the squad up to speed, struggled with injuries and and team selections and so on. So he changed tactical um, methods a few times and included in that is changing formation. So for the most part of last season, we abandoned the back three because we needed the extra man in midfield. Now, away at Arsenal, and I would expect to see this at Man City um, and Chelsea and Man United, which are three rather rude (laughs) away fixtures coming up, I would expect to see him do similar to what he did at Arsenal, which is to play three at the back, have kind of four, um, a a line of four, and then almost a midfield box with Danilo and Gibbs-White playing behind a forward. And I would imagine that would probably be a one-year if he's fit and Johnson if a one-year isn't. With the rumours linking Johnson away, we've also talked about the transfers and, and Forrest have been quiet so far. Are you expecting that situation to change both in terms of the possibility uh, that Johnson ends up at uh, Tottenham Hotspur, but also uh, the possibility that, you know, M- M- Montiel has come in uh, on a loan deal after being part of, of, of what was going on at Sevilla. So there's there's a year of, of, of Montiel, but are you expecting there to be, to, to be more beyond that point? Um. Well, Twitter, at the time that we're recording this, Twitter is alight with suggestions that Spurs are going to ramp up their efforts to sign Johnson. Daniel Levy being who he is, he wants to try and keep the price as low as possible. And Forrest, obviously, um, if they're going to sell, they don't need to sell. So they're going to ask for a, a, a 50 million deal, whether that's probably 40 million up front with add-ons and so on um, and sell-on clauses. I think that it's possible that Johnson will go for his own ambition. I think that it's not necess- it would be disappointing and it would be um upsetting, but it wouldn't be the end of the world for Forrest because their priorities lie in different parts of the pitch. So as well as Montiel, I mean pr- previously the talk was of Ibrahim Sangare. Whether that's doable or not, I don't know, but we certainly need to be thinking about a number six. But as part of this, the Montiel thing strikes me as I, I'm surprised that's a priority too. You know, Nico Williams is there, does relatively well last season. Aurier is excellent against Sheffield United, ends up walking off the pitch with two assists. Montiel is a right back. He is a right-sided defender. You know, do you think that that is to phase Aurier out? Um, there's some rumours suggesting that uh, Aurier might end up going to Saudi Arabia, but that could just as easily be started by a bloke on Twitter who's, who's, yeah. for whom it sounded like a good idea and then it catches fire. Um, 
I do agree with you that we seem to be overburdened with right backs and right wing backs. Um, <laughs> Ola Aina and Nico are covering the left hand side at the moment because Omar Richards looks like he's on his way out to Olympiacos to gain some fitness. And Harry Toffolo, we're assuming he's going to end up missing large chunks of the season anyway. He's not the first choice, but he's probably going to be facing a ban for these uh, historical betting offences. So so it does seem weird that they're loading up on the right-hand side. Um, I guess it's all about balance, though, and, and we'll see how that pans out in terms of the formation and the tactics that Cooper ends up using at various points in the season. Last thing then is the idea of going to Manchester United. Um, it, United last season were very, very good at home, especially uh, against, well, all sides up and down the division, but especially against the sides that will likely feature, finish in the bottom 10. Um, it is, though, worth pointing out that no way, shape or form do Forest disgrace themselves at Arsenal earlier in the campaign. And towards the end, it felt like a draw could well be snatched. It looks to me like one of those games where... It may well move towards Steve Cooper if Forrest can keep it alive uh, with 20 to go. Um, I think Cooper's used his subs really intelligently so far this campaign. Uh, it is only two games, but he's he's a clever football manager. Do you feel as though that will be his plan? We just get as far as deep into the game, keep it competitive and trust that we can actually change it successfully? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think that now's a good time to be playing United. They had a ropey start to last season. They seem to be having a ropey start to this season. Um, I think Forrest can go there do the the classic away team thing of keep, try and keep it tight and, and hit on the break. And of course, we've got a certain guy called Anthony Alanga who could come on as a sub and uh, maybe create something late on just like he did at Arsenal. Now, that wasn't enough to get us any points. But I mean, there would be a certain, I'm, I'm sure that for as much as footballers deny it, they go into those matches thinking they've got a point to prove. There we are indeed. Thank you very much to Rich. Uh, United away at the weekend for them. Uh, it does get easier. They've got Burnley at home coming, to be fair, for Nottingham Forest. Uh, but then after that, they've got Manchester City away. The whole thing feels as though it's some sort of mad thing set up for Forest. It is. You can find it on Sports Social, uh, the 18, 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast. It is there. If you ever do want to listen to, check it out. It is the business. And we are back. Uh, thank you very much to Rich. Uh, just last couple to work through because uh, when I went through the fixtures, I actually just mentally missed out Arsenal versus Fulham. So we're just going to do it as I didn't write it down on the agenda, Mo. Uh, <laughs> and also I decided that none of us need need to talk about Sheffield United's game against Manchester City. Uh, right. That is just not one that anyone needs to even conceive of dealing with uh, at this stage of proceedings. Um, I think City might just choose to win it 1-0 for a laugh. Well, uh, I, I just hope that they play Carl Walker up front. You know, make it his testimonial game now. <laughs> It'll be lovely for everyone to have a big round of applause. I want to talk about Brighton versus West Ham, Mo, because I think it should be an absolute belter. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really good test for both sides. West Ham need watching. I take Luke's point before. They were funny against Chelsea, but that's what would concern me a little bit in that you thought, oh, they're getting battered, they're getting battered. Oh, God, they're not getting battered. Mm. And that's a, at times a sign of a good David Moyes team. I think it's been a good David Moyes team at West Ham where the, they... If West Ham are resilient, they're a problem. Mm -hmm. And at the minute, last season at times in the league, they didn't look resilient. Right now, they look resilient. And Brighton, who will feel pretty good about things, need to not feel too good about things before the ball's kicked. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one because West Ham are a team who, they're kind of caught in the same perpetual loop every transfer window, in the same way a lot of clubs are. For us, it seems to be a defensive midfielder. For them, it's a striker. It's like every summer, they need a new striker. Last season, they spent loads of money on striker, got rid of them. They need a new striker. And that can become so all-consuming because goals are what game make games. But if you're a Moyes and if you know that squad, you know that if you can make them hard to beat, 
they still have the quality on the fringes. They still have the likes of Jared Bowen who can make you magic. They've still got Antonio who can still do Antonio things. So making them more secure, particularly in the absence of Declan Rice, was always going to be the move. And I think if you add in the fact that it's David Moyes' team, uh, and you factor in where West Ham are, I don't think you could have got a better guy to bring in than James Ward-Prowse. Because not only is he a level head, not only is he someone who's been in the Premier League a long time, but that quality that he brings, and he can put it on a sixpence whenever he wants. And that's how you're able to win a game where you have 24% of the ball. Because if you've got a guy who's deadly at set pieces, and he is deadly, and then you've got the kind of height that West Ham have got in their side. A team of giants, the side calling them now, a <laughs> yeah. team of giants. So that gives you such a confidence boost that even if you're getting hammered by a team, if you can stay in it, if you can just hold out, you can get your punches in the other end. And I think that's going to get them a lot of points in this. Whether or not they are still kind of tactically vulnerable to a team like Brighton who are going to be trying to run at them from all angles, we'll have to wait and see. Agard not being there because of his sending off is going to be a blow because the other perennial West Ham problem is that even when the first 11 is good, they are always light on depth and a big injury or suspension to one of their key players could also make them look a lot different. So that's going to be their biggest problem, I think. Going to be one, uh, Ian, where Brighton will, they will dominate the ball. Uh, they can expect to dominate the ball. I'm intrigued to see what team he picks because he's about to get to the point, the manager of Brighton, where he's going to be back to two games a week. They're going to be playing Europa League football. He's already shook it up a little bit, I think. I think he wants to make as many people as possible feel involved. And I do wonder whether or not, you know, he's been playing Milner inverted right back. But I do wonder whether or not in this one, it may well be someone else or it might be Milner moves into midfield because I think the thing they all want is height. I think you've got to have a height plan if you're playing against West Ham United. Yeah, it's interesting that Milner's played fullback first two games. And if you're thinking, fucking hell, I can't believe this. <laughs> Moved to Honestly. another club. <laughs> Wanted central midfield appearances. Oh, fucking hell. Um, I mean, they're great to watch, aren't they? I think it's interesting the high points. I mean, I I assumed, obviously wrongly, I thought Ferguson would have started the season because I think he's great. And I think whenever I've caught him, I've always been really impressed. And a lot of people talk about, is he the next one that's going to be, you know, huge money? And he, may, he might well be because... He looks like he's got all the tools uh, to be a great centre forward. But he's gone with Welbeck, who was, again, you know, was a fairly tall player. I quite like Welbeck. I mean, he doesn't score lots of goals, but as a focal point, I think he's really good. It's always been about keeping him fit, but he doesn't half give you the great focal point. If you can put it up to him, he holds it really well. And because of the type of players Brighton have got, and they are all quite small and diminutive, and they get in and about you and stuff, and you know, they, they, they spot gaps, and they, they can kind of um, create little spaces. But you're right, Neil, in terms of a threat, West Ham are physical and massive. But I don't know whether Brighton will just back themselves. Because they've got mm. so many good ball players. I mean, that goal Matoma scores against Wolves. My God, what a goal that was. But then you've got Solly Marsh, who's really clever with his movements as well. And then Sisso, I think he's got a bit of a knee problem. He could be a doubt. Yeah. But he's such a good footballer. And the way he picks out Solly Marsh for those two goals at Wolves, was it was just brilliant. Great movements. And he's, he's a lad who's 29 now, Solly Marsh, but he looks like he's getting better with age. They've got lots and lots of options. They get the who, don't they, on a free as yeah. well. I think he starts the first game, doesn't start the second game. Lalana's on the bench for the last game. So they are a team where, depending on the occasion, there are, there are moves mm. they can make. There are different players they can bring in. There is experience there. There's lads who've won the biggest stuff and got over the line in, in really, really big football matches. So I'd probably edge towards Brighton coming out with the three points, if I'm honest. You expect Brighton to get the three points, uh, Luke. I think it's reasonable to expect that. But I think it is... 
it's another one of those when I'm saying it's a good test. I think you know Brighton ends up winning all of their first three, and, yeah. and, and you know it's 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 an interesting little spread because. West Ham can make it hard for you. West Brighton did really well last season against the sides that finished in the bottom half. They'll need to keep doing that with with quality. But I do wonder whether or not we might be going. I tell you what, West Ham might be a little bit better than people think this season by the end of this one. I think Brighton just continue to improve though. They're a joy to watch as well. You'd even see players that they brought in like Joe Pedro. He's only young, but he seems to just hit the ground running straight away. They just buy into that philosophy. Again, it's like when players join City, like I've already mentioned. It's like they've been there for years already. They don't have that like embedding process. They're just there. Like I don't know what they do in training, but I think he's a fantastic manager as well. And at some point he will move on. But on the point about West Ham, I think every season West Ham seem like they're in turmoil, and then they'll have an half decent season. Obviously, we've seen they won the Conference League last year. Like they've been in Europe the last three or four years now. So I think David Moyes, because he's David Moyes and the reputation that he's had, I think he gets a bit disrespected at times. I think he's a very, very good manager. And I think people look at him and think he's like technically inept, but he's not. You look at the teams he has managed, they're always solid. And like they're always an underdog as well. Every season, when he was at, even when he was at Everton, you've seen like, people would doubt us and we'd finish fifth, seventh all the time. I think they'll be all right, West Ham. I think they'll be mid-table. I think Brighton, again, though, will be up there at sixth, seventh in the European places, to be honest. Okay then, um, last little one that we're going to go through is Burnley versus Aston Villa um, and it's another one that's interesting for my big handicapper table in my own head as to who's where. <laughs> Villa are off the back of a good win um, but they have had to go to Edinburgh to get that good win in and a moving part of this season is Chelsea and Tottenham don't have midweek football all the way through with the exception of the EFL Cup. Um, other sides do, including Villa and Brighton uh, who may not necessarily be used to it. Burnley are off the back of nothing, and that's the the key thing to point out. I think they played the game behind closed doors in here as well, but it's one where I think you're going to learn a thing or two about Burnley. Again, not even the idea necessarily of winning, but balancing some of these games on points, seeing who's running well, seeing who looks like they're in good shape versus the rest of the field. I think it's a big one with this for Burnley in a weird way. No, it is because... If you look at the, the the kind of fixtures at the start of the season, you know, no one expects them to get anything against Manchester City, and that's how it kind of plays out. You know, they were never getting anything from that game, and then they have the game against Luton, which is called off. So, yeah, company would have looked at this one and thought there's a chance. But that said, no, I think Villa are a good team. You know, you you can get lulled into the five-one against Newcastle and think, hang on, what's going wrong there? But that, that can happen. Yeah, that game just got away from them. And as I said before, the Tyrone Mings thing, I think it upsets people on the day. And Villa weren't the same because they get back into that game 1 1 and they look okay, but then they do fall apart. But I always come back to they've got really, really good players, um, especially Watkins. I know he hasn't started like a house on fire in the league, but he gets the three against Hibs. And listen, <laughs> there's a lot to be said for hat tricks. There is a lot to be said. And Hibs aren't, they're not a, a great opponent in terms of quality, but just in terms of kicking them on and giving a bit of confidence and allowing the better players to express themselves, it's not a bad little warm up fixture mm. that just to go into this one. It'll be a totally different game, but we know Burnley are different now. They play more football than they have done under previous managers. So, I think it's a, it's an interesting one. I have to say, I do think it's one where Villa's better players might just give them the edge, and I wouldn't be surprised if they, um, if they win it by the old goal. I think Villa will go into it rightly favourites, but I do think that company, from what I've seen of him, the way his, his the style is, he will be able to sell uh, negative pluses. So the fact that they've only played one game, people are still not really sure what they are. So the fact that not enough people have got enough uh, information on who they are, whereas he's now seen, what, two Villa games? So he'll be pulling apart everything that they've done. They'll be working on it on the training pitch. That'll be his advantage. But the big problem for Burnley 
is we talk about all the teams who are going to be in and around there. You're circling your games. Who you, who you think are your winners? Uh, Luton was that game in the first start of the season. Like, I think in between now and September, they all play all their games. Uh, they've got Nottingham Forest away. Um, but other than that, that like their home games, their first six home games, Man City, Aston Villa, Spurs, Man United, Chelsea, uh, and then you go to Crystal Palace. <laughs> Christ. And it's like... All of those, like, so there's, and there, I mean, even the away games, you've got Newcastle in there. So obviously, Forest away, that's going to be massive. But they could go a long way without having a win under their belts. That's why I think it's important they do something in this game, Mo. I think that's why it's important they can't be passengers to do it. They can't get to the end of it and go, well, what can we do? It's another team who are too good. Mm. Like, I think it'd be different if they were away games. To make the point I was making before, I think there's going to be 11 teams who are going to nine teams where they're going to be very much second favourites. And every now and again, someone's going to get hammered and it's going to feel like the end of the world, but picking yourselves up is going to matter. The key thing for Burnley, though, is they can't look uncompetitive in the homes. No. not City's a separate case. It might be that by the end of the season, Arsenal, maybe Liverpool could be a separate case where it's all right if you just get done 3-0 by them. Mm-hmm. But they can't look uncompetitive in the homes because it'll kill them, I think. No, it will kill them. And particularly with having so many of those in a row, if they were spread out over the season, there'd be no expectation for you to get any points from them. But having them in a row, you're almost like, well, we get, we get one of them. We're getting closer, we're getting closer. And so it does become a pressurised situation. The other thing I think to note with Villa and that game in midweek... Um, uh, Luke um, Luca Dean also got a hat trick of assists, and he was in acres of space every single time. So maybe that's something they'll be working on. I feel like maybe if you're a company, you can say we can start to work out how Villa want to play and start to counteract it. It's going to be whether or not they have the quality to match them. I think Luke, with you know, obviously Everton had Villa last week. It's this is part of the working out where everyone is. So yeah. if Villa sw- swoop into Burnley, knock them for four. What you said before about Sheffield United and Luton, you begin to go, all right, well, there's Burnley in there as well, possibly. I think that that's what this this weekend does. Everyone sort of played a different flavour of team on the whole at least once. It is going to be, I think it's going to be riveting. It's a shame it's not on telly uh, and they put the Manchester City game on instead um, because I think this will be a really, really interesting fixture to find out where everyone is. I think 4-0 flattered Villa though against us. I think we were that poor. And again, you've won 4-0 and 5-0 in a week, but against two very weak oppositions, one of them being Everton. But I think we don't know what Burnley are yet, and I think it'd be easy to fall into the trap of oh, the the Burnley of old, where it's hard to go to. Like this is a really good football inside. Yeah. We don't know if they have the quality of the Premier League yet. They absolutely storm the Championship, and I think company you had them in like in July for pre-season mm. or June early. I think I'm still convinced be... someone put the wrong date on an email and everyone had to start <laughs> that one out. Someone put the wrong date on an email and everyone had to go. Okay, we just then. finished and they were back. Yeah, it was yeah, fucking yeah. wild. It so, just wouldn't shock me at all if, if they were. 15th to 10th I don't think they'll be down there I think there's a philosophy and a plan and I think the teams that do have philosophy and a plan unlike Everton will do you be. think they can get something Sunday then yeah I do yeah I think that I think that it's a very good fixture it's sort of like everyone's expecting Villa people act like, like Villa like City and they're not it, it's the Aston Villa they're, they're a decent side but they can certainly be, they be got at with a good attack but again we don't know how good their attack is yet so I think this game will it'll show a lot of where Burnley and Villa are Okay, uh, thank you very much indeed to Rich uh, and uh, to Robbie for joining us. Uh, all the congratulations for Robbie, obviously, on his wedding day. Uh, thank you as well uh, to Ian, to Mo, and to Luke, uh, Andy for producing. It has been the Friday show. Tell your mates about it. Covered a lot of ground there. Sports Social Podcast Network.